All right. So uh, we are part. We are in the middle, the beginning of a semester-long series on the Gospel of John. Last week, Jerry um, taught us about Jesus turning water into wine—a very familiar miracle. Um, there's going to be a consistent theme in the Gospel of John. John he presents something ordinary, something familiar with us, and he shows us how it's a sign that points us to a deeper reality about Jesus. So last week, Jesus turned water, ordinary water, into fantastic wine. He used these ordinary purification jars, and he showed that he is fulfilling the purification requirements on our behalf. So keep an eye out for this ordinary to extraordinary sort of imagery. Um, that John uses in his gospel. Our passage this week is John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. It's a familiar passage, I'm sure, um, that you have heard before. It's also a very misunderstood and misinterpreted story about Jesus' life. And to illustrate that, I have a story that I want to tell you. It happened just this last weekend. This last weekend, my brother-in-law and I we entered into a disc golf tournament, a doubles tournament. Amazing, right? You had no idea. We woke up at the crack of dawn, right? We drove all the way to Fredericksburg. And this as I'm telling the story right now, like I'm feeling the butterflies in my stomach about it because it's, it's really fun, but it's also kind of nerve-wracking. Things were going swimmingly for us. We were hitting all our lines. We were making our putts. We looked like we were going to be playing pretty well. And we were playing with the top dogs, too. We were playing in the pro division because we wanted to play for money. Um, everything was going well until the seventh hole. And I line up my shot, and bam, I hit the very first tree in front of the tee pad. Listen, I was pulling my hair out, y'all. You don't even know. I was angry as angry, right? But there's nothing left to do when that happens but just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, get back on the horse, and keep moving. Got to finish the hole. We finished strong, and we ended in seventh place out of 26 teams. I was extremely happy. I was over the moon about it, floating on air all the way back home. We won $35. <laughs> but I'll have you know, now I won $35. I tell you this story not to show, by the way, this is an almost entirely true story, except that I didn't actually hit a tree. I don't hit trees. Um, <laughs> uh, I tell you this story, not to tell you about disc golf, but to illustrate for you the importance of metaphors. Right? I don't know if you noticed, but in this story, I used a lot of imagery, metaphor, analogy. Metaphors, they help us to connect truth to our shared experiences. In fact, um, my wife and I are reading a book right now called Confronting Christianity by Rebecca McLaughlin. It's fantastic. She makes the point that good theology requires good interpretation of metaphor versus literalism. We need to be able to tell the difference to read our Bibles accurately. When I told you that, I was so happy I was walking on air. I wasn't inviting you to marvel at my levitation skills. Right? Likewise, tonight on the way home, if I call Grace and I say, Grace, I'm stuck on the side of the road. I'm broken down. I don't want her to think, oh, well, maybe he just means like emotionally broken down. So I'll stay home and I'll pray for him, right? <laughs> we need to be able to interpret metaphor and reality. 
Jesus relied heavily on metaphor when he communicated deep philosophical spiritual truths. At the same time, his misinterpreted metaphor was often the thing that got into the most trouble with religious elites. He didn't know how to tell the difference between when he was being literal and metaphorical. In our passage today, Jesus is going to come into conflict with the Jewish elites, with the center of Jewish life and culture. He's going to offer a profound truth about himself. Um, but is it, it's instead, it's going to be misinterpreted by his hearers to the point where they, they completely miss the point. Um, even his disciples are left perplexed by this. And likewise, if we don't take careful attention, we may also miss the point. All right, so I'm going to pray, then we're going to read the passage, and we'll jump into it. Father, would you open our eyes to this passage? Help us to see the truth. I pray that you would illuminate my eyes to your truth. And anything that I say that's contrary, that it would be quickly forgotten. In your name I pray, amen. Okay, so let's read the passage. It's chapter 2 of the Gospel of John, verses 13 to 22. Okay, verse 13, it says, The Jewish Passover was near. And so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of the cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and their oxen, and he poured out the money changers' coins, and he overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him. They said, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. Um, therefore, the Jews said, this temple took us 46 years to build and you'll raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Yeah. So, uh, this is one of very few stories about Jesus' life, which is reflected in all four Gospels. There's a lot of overlap, but very few of them are found in all four. In the Gospel of John, it's very early. It's, in, it's only in chapter 2. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it shows up towards the end of, of, of their story, of their story about Jesus. It's possible that the four events are the, are the same event, it's also possible that they could be multiple occurrences. The Gospel of John, he doesn't present his claims about Jesus as chronological. He doesn't say, this happened first, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. He often tells things assuming that you're already familiar with the event. But there is compelling reason to think that Jesus could have had this experience multiple times in the temple. Um, I don't have enough time to get into all the reasons why it is or why it isn't, I'd be really interested in, in what you think about it. If you want to go home this week and study the four stories about Jesus in the temple, let me know what you think. Do you think it's the same occurrence, or do you think it's maybe a different occurrence? To understand this passage, there are two vital cultural things that you have to know about the temple, or else this is just going to go right over your head. The first is about the physical structure of the temple. Simply put, and, and for our purposes, um, it suffices to say that the temple had areas where only certain people were allowed to be in them. Um, the outermost area, once you entered the temple, was known as the court of the Gentiles, the outer court. This was open to everyone, both Jew and Gentile. 
If you're not aware, Gentile is anyone in the whole world who's not a Jew, right? But there were, there were guidelines for who could go certain places. So this outer court, the court of the Gentiles, anyone could go in, right? The inner court, once you moved into the temple more, had progressive layers as well that were progressively restrictive. There was the court of women, where both men and women could worship. There was the court of Israel, only men were allowed to enter. The court of the priests, where you can guess that the priests were allowed to enter, all the way into the most holy of holies, where nobody was allowed except for one priest once a year. So this story taking place takes place, apparently, it seems, in the outermost court, in the court of the Gentiles. If you were a God-fearing non-Jew at the time, this was going to be the only acceptable place for you to pray, offer your sacrifices, and worship in the temple. So the second thing you need to know about the temple was the role of the temple in Jewish society. It would be, sometimes we read this and we think, temple, church. I'm in a church, just like a temple. Sorry, it's just like Jesus entered the church. It's really not. It would be incorrect to, to see that as congruent. The temple was the center of Jewish law, spirituality, politics, taxation. The temple was fiercely connected with the Jewish sense of right, with, with identity. Uh, as a matter of fact, this temple that we read about is actually the second temple because the first temple was sacked by Babylon in the 540s BC some, sometime. So for 550 years until Herod the Great rebuilt the second temple, the Jews were without a temple altogether. And this was a source of national lament for the Jews. They thought, how could, how could God, God forgot us. We don't even have a temple anymore. So like the temple is this very innately personal thing for the Jewish state. But the very most important function of the temple, and the thing that we're going we're gonna to focus on today, is the temple was the spot where God interacted with his people. Hence, the pilgrimage that all the Jews took for various holy days. And, and the most important holy day, arguably, was the Passover, which is where we find Jesus interacting with in this passage. Jesus, it, it's the Passover. Jesus is pilgriming, pil, pilgriming to, pilgrimaging, right? Whatever. <laughs> to the temple for the Passover. He's observing the holiday. Both Jews and God-fearing Gentiles from all over the world would travel to Jerusalem to observe one of these most important holidays. There were required sacrifices for them to give. But naturally, if you're traveling long distances to go to the temple, you can't like take an oxen with you. You can't take doves with you. You're going to have to buy what you need for your sacrifices once you get to Jerusalem. The Jewish historian Josephus in, in 65 AD, he estimated that the number of Jews in Jerusalem for the Passover in 65 AD was no fewer than 3 million. All right, this was an intensely packed holiday. So you can, you can see then, if everyone needs to, if the people coming from outside the city need to buy their sacrifices when they get there, there's the potential for a lot of money to exchange hands during this time. So Jesus enters the temple in his Passover duties, and he sees something that deeply, deeply troubles him. He sees oxen, he sees sheep, he sees doves all over the place in the core of the Gentiles. There are merchants who are calling out, advertising their goods. There's money changers who are exchanging foreign currency and profiting from the pilgrims. Imagine the commotion that, would, that Jesus would have entered into. 
this is the part that kind of lends itself to misinterpretation because Jesus very, very outwardly and very viscerally reacts to this scene that's in front of him. And because Jesus tends to be a person that uses his words to repudiate the things that he finds like unacceptable, when he reacts viscerally and physically, it, it draws our attention, right? This is, not, this is not necessarily something that we're familiar seeing Jesus do. It stands out to us. So there's a, been a lot of misinterpretations of this. Some of you probably even heard yourself. People like to use this passage to kind of say, like, look, Jesus is on our side. He did this. I, you'll hear Jesus is attacking the sacrificial system. Like Jesus is making a commentary about sacrificing animals. So no more sacrifice. No more animal sacrifice. That's not true. Um, you'll, you'll hear people say, Jesus is anti-money. Money changers, doesn't like the money. He throws them on the, flip the tables. No more capitalism, right? Let's all be communists. See, Jesus is communist. That, we know that's not true because Jesus himself, it, uh, like, pays the temple tax. In, in other parts of the gospel, we see Jesus is paying the temple tax, and he does it without objection. So we know that Jesus is not inherently anti-money when it comes to the temple. Sometimes you'll hear Jesus is protecting the rights of pilgrims and immigrants. Jesus looks out for the immigrants, and so we should too. And I, I, this one even has a little bit of truth in it, because in the other gospel accounts, we see that it does in part motivate Jesus to protect the ability of the Gentiles to worship. Right? So he, he does see something wrong with this scene. Um, but one thing Jerry told me this week is we really need to get into the habit of letting Jesus speak for himself when it comes to the Bible. We don't have to read between the lines all the time. And Jesus very clearly tells us what the problem is. He doesn't leave us to interpret it. Um, he says in verse 16, he says, uh, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. It's, a, it's unfortunate that your, my Bible, which is the Christian Standard Bible, and probably your Bible, interpret this in a little bit different way. Uh, but the literal interpretation would be, stop turning my father's house into a house of business. Right? It, it's an intentional play on words. Um, there's an ex, there's like, it, it's not a metaphor. right? This is a liter, Jesus is literally describing what he sees happening. My father's house is now a house of business. Um, but the, the problem is for Jesus is not the inclusion of money in the temple system. It's not that the money exists in the temple or is changing hands. His problem is that corruption of God's house has, has come from the love of money. Right? The, the possibility of making money from these pilgrims was too much to bear, and God's house has now become a, a house of business. By the way, this was a sanctioned event. We have some, we have some evidence to believe that, that the, um, the, the high priest at the time, his name was Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, which was like the House of Representatives, right? They kind of like brokered this deal where they were going to allow market, like business, to take place in the temple. This was, it's not a one-off event. It wasn't isolated. This was a part of normal temple proceedings made worse by the Passover festival. So hearing Jesus say this, get out of it, stop turning my father's house into a house of business, it brought to the disciples' memories something from the Old Testament. It's a messianic, a messianic psalm from Psalm 69. And, and, and his disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. The topic of the Messiah and what his role would be in Israel and what, and what he would accomplish with his messiahship, it was a very common topic of discussion among first century Jews. Um, in the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, he predicted that whoever the Messiah would be 
that he would once and for all, he would purge the temple of unrighteousness. It was, it was expected. When the Messiah comes, he'll clean this place up. Jesus has diagnosed the scene in front of him. He diagnosed it as disordered worship. The temple leaders had exchanged the worship of God for the worship of money. And Jesus was quite literally, he was purging the temple of idol worship. Now the irony is that instead of purging the temple of religious outsiders, Jesus was purging the temple of the sin of the religious elite, the insiders. He had, he had identified that the, the exchange was in the heart of the religious elite. And it had repudiated his father's house, made it into something that it's not supposed to be. So when the temple leaders are confronted with this truth, they don't offer a counter-argument. Notice, they, don't actually, they, don't, they don't, don't actually deny what he's saying, but they deflect it back to Jesus. Um, it's in verse 18. It says, so the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? They have rightly identified that any changes that happen to the temple, that it has to be from divine origin, divine authority. But as the reader... The irony is thick here. If anyone in the whole world has the authority to critique his father's house, it's naturally it's Jesus. Remember, John assumes we know Jesus is the Messiah. It's in the very first sentence of the very first chapter of the book that Jesus is God. So he's not hiding and progressively revealing like the other Gospels do. There's a thick, thick irony here that they're saying, now, really, who are you exactly to be coming in here and, and critiquing this? If anyone has the authority to do it, it's Jesus. But this, this exchange is a sure sign of the Pharisees' idolatry. Often, when we're confronted with the truth of our sin, we do similar things. We demand proof. We demand that they, they justify themselves. So what, what right do you have? exactly, to be pointing this out to me. Who do you think you are? We push outwardly. We, when we're confronted with sin that we know is true, we go on the counteroffensive. Um, John Piper, he says, they ask for a sign, um, but really what they need is not, they don't need a sign of Jesus' divinity. They need a heart which loves the truth more than it loves their own sin. Furiously, Jesus, in response to this, he doesn't, he doesn't dwell on the argument, and he doesn't offer his own supporting points, um, although he could have easily shown that using the temple for a marketplace is a repudiation of its design. He takes their question, and he gives, he gives an answer, but it's a cryptic answer. It's, a, it's an answer in such a way that has a double meaning. He says, Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. This is pretty typical of Jesus. He both answers the question, and he does it in such a way that hides the meaning of it as well. It is an answer to their question. What's your authority? Well, he told them what his authority is. But, but it's not obvious what he's saying. He reveals who he is and why he's qualified to critique what he sees in the temple, but he obscures it in such a way that those who are not humble enough to receive it will not receive it. Those who are not humble and drawn near to Jesus will not receive what the meaning really is. 
They respond in verse 20. Um, probably like exactly like Howard responds. This temple took 46 years to build, and you're going to raise it up in three days, right? Like it's it's laughable, and it, and it is. If you're that if, if you're that obtuse that um, you're taking him literally, then yes, it is kind of laughable. And the author John he he offers his own little commentary there, um, in case you weren't aware. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Um, he makes it clear he doesn't he doesn't kind of let you sit on it. Um, so what does Jesus mean by this? He says, destroy the temple. Destroy this temple. What does he mean by this? Well, it's a double-layered sort of answer. On one level, Jesus is saying, you are destroying this temple with your worship of money. Your, your sin, your idolatry is destroying this temple, spiritually destroying it. And, and the temple would be literally destroyed by the Romans only six years after it was completed in 70 AD. Um, so that, like, there's, there's some literalism here that he is repudiating them for they're destroying the temple. But on, on a second level, Jesus is saying that your idolatry and your greed, it will destroy me. We know Jesus was talking about his body when he says this. Jesus was literally destroyed for 30 pieces of silver. Right, not, it's not a metaphor. Jesus was sold for a small sum of silver. It was the sin of greed that betrayed him from his own disciple, Judas. It was the envy of the religious elites that orchestrated his death. Their idolatry, their greed, their love of money and power would literally destroy Jesus. I will raise it up in three days. What does he mean? On one level... He's saying, I will, I will literally raise up my literal body in three days. And we know that that happened. Later on in John, John or Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up. Jesus will lay down his life on his own authority through the sin of the people that killed him. And he will raise it up again on his authority. So on one level, he's literally predicting his resurrection. On a second level, Jesus is saying that where your sin destroys, I will give life. Your sin is destroying God's dwelling place with man. And I will give this life. I will raise it up. Sin separates us from God. Jesus, in his body, brings us life with God. Okay. Romans 5.21, it, it says, this is Paul, the Apostle Paul speaking, he says, just as sin reigned in death, so also grace will reign through righteousness. Just as sin reigned in death, grace will reign through righteousness, resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The temple... As with every part of the law that God prescribed his people, it wasn't given to be God's final solution. It was meant to point us towards the final solution. Remember we said the ordinary gets turned around into the extraordinary. The temple, as a Jew, what could be more recognizable than the temple? Jesus is a sign to point to the final solution where God would dwell with his people. 
In this passage, Jesus is exposing how sin has broken the intended usage of the temple. And in the process, he redirects our attention. He demonstrates that the real activity of God in the world, the real temple where God dwells with his people, is himself. In Romans, again, Paul says, sin, he's personifying sin when he says this, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and killed me. But where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. Sin deceives us. It promises us things it can't deliver. Where grace, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. What sin has destroyed through us, Jesus will raise up and give life. This passage, it offers two amazing truths about Jesus, which if we let them, will illuminate things about our heart as well. Two truths about Jesus, which illuminate things about our heart. The first is this. In this passage, we see what Jesus hates. We see this passage shows us what Jesus truly hates. Um, we, it, it's easy to fall into the trap of worshiping and it's all good, Jesus. I, I've come so you can, you know, kind of do what you want. Like, I'll, I'll cover the bill. That, that Jesus. And, and there's some good reason for that because Jesus is a profoundly kind Savior. He, he calls himself meek and mild. He beckons the humble to come to him. He, and he promises that he is gentle and that he Heart. Um, there's some good reason why we would see Jesus in this one-dimensional sort of way, because he is recklessly kind towards those who come to him with faith. But his love means nothing if he does not hate the things that degrade what he loves. How much would your love for your family mean if you wouldn't protect your family? How much does your love for a significant other. What does that mean if when they're in danger, you're indifferent towards it? Jesus hates what, de what degrades the things that he loves. Jesus loves true worship of his Father. And so he hates anything that corrupts the worship of his Father. And because Jesus loves the worship of his Father, he hates when his Father's name is taken in vain. Um, we often hear that command and we think that means, that's a, you know, it's not a four-letter word, but that's like, you know, it just means curse words. It means, it means don't say the bad curse words about Jesus or God. Put his name in vain. Um, and a couple years ago at Fall Retreat, Byron, who's a good friend of mine, uh, Byron Strawn, he said, taking the Lord's name in vain is attaching God's name to anything which is decidedly not of God. Right? It's when we, we use God to further the things that are definitely not God. We've taken his name in vain. When God's gifts become a vehicle for our own self-betterment, when, when we use what he's given us to promote ourselves, it's a corruption of the worship. His gifts should drive us to worship him. And when we use it for ourselves with merely no regard for God, it's a corruption of worship. And Jesus hates that. It causes them to like flip tables and make whips. 
God, Jesus hates man-made hurdles to God. When we put things in the way of our worship of God or, or other people's worship of God, things like cultural preferences, stubbornness for the wrong reasons in the wrong areas, when we put hurdles before other people interacting with God, it's a, it's a repudiation of worship of God. So this passage shows us what Jesus truly hates. The second thing it shows us is that Jesus, he, he offers his body as the new temple, as the new site for worship. But it's not going to come without a cost. Romans 5, 8, it says, God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He proves his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Our sin, it's not inconsequential. This, this passage shows us that our sin is not just against us. It's, it's really not even just against God, although it is. Our, our sin actually has consequences to the people around us. Like very, very often, my sinful choices affect my wife, my friends, my responsibilities, the people that rely on me. Right? Our, our sin has consequences. Colossians 2.14, it says... He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He, he erased it. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. There's a, there's a cost to Jesus reconciling us through our sin. It's his own body. But true worship of God, it's no longer a place. It's no longer a language, a building, a song. None of that can bring us to God, but there is a person. True worship is found in Jesus. When we turn from our sin, when we, when we call our disordered worship what it is, we don't make excuses, we humble ourselves, when we confess our sin, put our faith in Jesus, we can know God as our perfectly loving Father and have the relationship with him that Jesus has. Um, if you're here tonight, you've never heard that before, you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'd love to, to hear from you. If, if, if you've heard that and you've never made that decision for yourself, don't leave here tonight without doing that. Talk to the person that brought you. Talk to me, your small group leader. Um, if anything I've said tonight, you don't, you don't really get you don't really like it, we can talk afterwards, we can talk next week, I'll buy you coffee. Uh, I'm going to pray and then the band's going to come up for Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word, your word which convicts us, it, it, it shows us life, it shows us, it shows us that Jesus is our life, that we can worship you in spirit and truth, and I pray that it would convict us, that we, that we wouldn't hear this and forget it, but that your word would continue to refine us, would you purge us of unrighteousness? Make us to be a people um, that worships what you love. Your name, amen. Thanks for tuning in and listening. If you want to find out more information on what you heard, you can check out our website at jmucrew.com.